Today's scripture reading is Genesis 6, 5 through 10. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is God's word for today. You may be seated. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Grace. We're continuing our series called Living Stones. Recently, we finished a series on 1 Peter, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Peter says that the Lord God is building us, we are living stones, that he is building into a living household, living household on the foundation of Christ. And what we are doing uh, this, uh, this winter is we are looking at the beginning of this building process, starting in the beginning with the master builder. Now, the focus here is not to examine each individual, Adam, Eve, today Noah, then eventually Abraham and so forth. The goal is not to look at these individuals and say, see how awesome they are. We need to be like them. The goal here is to understand how trustworthy the master builder is so that me, we might trust him that we might trust him. And the scripture today is, is, uh, is fairly heavy, fairly heavy. We're coming to uh, the patriarch Noah. So if you turn in your Bible to uh, Genesis um, chapter 6, that's where we're going to be. And as you turn there, just want to ask this question. It says that Noah found favor in the sight of God. So the question that I want us to, to open with this morning is how, how, do I find favor with God? Here's four different ways that people typically look to find favor with God. Number one, be better. Just be better. Number two, or be here, be yourself. I don't need to be better. God just accepts me as I am. I mean, I am awesome, aren't I? Aren't you? So why would God, why would I need to change? Uh, the third one, C, just be God. This is, uh, this is from an angle of, I don't need to be better because I am the judge of all things. I am the judge of all things. Or believe God. We're going to take a look at, uh, at only one of those. Only one of those is actually right. So how do I find favor with God? It requires that we understand two things. It requires that we understand two things. Number one, the pervasive problem of sin. Now, we introduced that last week. That's where we began last week. So we're going we're gonna to take a little bit look at just the, the extent of what sin does when it, when it has free reign. So the pervasive problem of sin. And then we're going to look at the power, the power of grace. So please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we come to you in humble dependence. We need you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Father, we need your favor. So we just pray that your spirit would guide us in truth this morning as we open up your word. Speak to us through your word, Lord. May you bring glory to yourself. May Christ be exalted. Bring conviction of sin where that is needed. 
bring comfort where that is needed. Father, we ask that you would do whatever is required in each of our hearts to bring us closer to you, that we might learn to trust you and walk with you and to bring you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the pervasive problem of sin, that's the first thing we're going to look at. There's four parts to this pervasive problem. First of all, sin's origin. We covered most of that last week. We'll just briefly touch on it again. Uh, Secondly, sin's objective. What's its goal? Its goal as if it has a personality. And it does, sort of. So sin's objective. And then sin's extent. The extent to which sin affects this world, both then in Genesis chapter 6, but also now. And then uh, sin's penalty. So those four things we're going to look at. If you're a note taker, that's where we're headed. First of all, sin's origin. Sin's origin. This is from last week. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So if you were here last week, that's a recap. If you were not here last week, I would encourage you to go to the website, download last week's sermon, listen to that, and you'll get caught up. In a nutshell, the origin of sin, the essence of sin, is simply man distrusting his maker, our maker, and determining that we, in our own eyes, know what is best. I mean, that's the essence of sin. It's to, it's to choose to be autonomous. Autonomous means, it's, it's a compound word. Auto, self, nomos, law, self-law. We are our own lawmakers. We are our own judge. We, we, we are the measure. We believe ourselves to be the measure of all things. So that's the, that's the origin. That's the essence of sin. Won't spend a lot of time on that. We spent a whole sermon on it last week. Now, let's, let's progress here. Sin's objective. Now, in Genesis chapter 4, in Genesis chapter 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel. We have the story of Cain and Abel. Abel brings an offering which is acceptable to the Lord, and, and Cain brings an offering which is rejected by the Lord. Now, Cain is ticked off because his offering was not accepted. He is angry. And so... We have here in verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is, now catch this, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Okay, the objective of sin is, is to rule over us. Now, look, look at the words that God uses. It's crouching. It's cr- he gives it a personality. He gives it a personality. Paul gives it a personality in Romans 7, and he's talking about a Christian who has said, he said, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin who dwells within me. What is that about? Sin has a power And there's a personality to it. It crouches, it waits, it looks for an opportunity. And here, the the verbiage is, it says it's contrary to you. That word contrary, the exact same word in Genesis 3.15. 3.16. Where it says that your desire shall be for your husband. Remember we talked about that week? It can be translated for, contrary, against. Many translations, its desire is for you. It wants to have you. It wants to have you. 
that you must rule over it. How many Tolkien nerds are there here? We had a few Tolkien nerds. You like Lord of the Rings. Okay, I saw one or two of the movie. You get, there's, there's this thing called the Ring of Power. You remember the Ring of Power? So the Ring of Power, here's, here's what it says. It, on the ring, it's inscribed, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness, bind them. That's the objective. It's crouching, it's waiting, it's patient, and that is the objective. To dominate, to roll, rule, to infin- infiltrate, to, 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 to take complete control. Its desire is contrary to you. In other words, it doesn't want your best. It doesn't want, it has a mind of its own. It has a mind of its own. Oh, by the way, our wills cooperate with it, and it becomes a precious, if you will. We, we long for it, but it's, it never leads to anything good. Never leads to anything good. So that's, that's, the, uh, uh, that's the objective. It wants to rule. It wants to rule. Now, what happens when we give it free reign? What happens when we give it sin's extent? So we're leapfrogging generations. Genesis 4, Genesis 5, and now we're into Genesis chapter 6. We've covered multiple, multiple generations. And here's where we end up in Genesis 5, verse 6. Take a look. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now catch this last half of this sentence. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what happens, what happens when sin crouches at the door because its desire is to rule over us and then it springs and then it has its way? It's complete un hindered reign and rule of sin. What happens? What does man look like? The thoughts, every thought, every inclination of the heart, every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil all the time. Now, most of you are familiar with this. Romans chapter 3. Paul says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Can you, can you buy into that? Can each of you agree that, you know what? I can agree, I can admit that I have at times done what I thought was wise, contrary to what I figured I ought to do. Are you all on the same page? Now, probably none of you, I hope none of you, would say this. Every every inclination of my thoughts and my desires has only been evil all of the time. Anyone? This is a whole level of evil that none of us here can possibly experientially understand. There's no way. There's no way the modern reader can, can project themselves back into Genesis 6 and understand understand the extent of the effect of sin in in the world at this time. It's it's altogether unlike anything that that our our modern culture has understood. I mean, there there are evil people in the world, yes? 
Yeah, so, so you know, mafia bosses and in and, and the Nazi regime and so forth. But here, here's the thing. E- even then, they go home and they, they play with their kids and they love their family. So they can switch it off. In other words, there's moments when the thoughts of their heart are for the good. Maybe they're, they're selfless in terms of, 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 of seeking the good of someone else. Sometimes. Maybe not most times, but some, not here. This is altogether different. Now, how in the world, how in the world can a culture, can a society get this bad? So you don't have to turn there, but Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them. This is chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, so that, so that in the things that have been made, so that they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for immortal... Uh, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals. Now, here, here, here's the, here's the punchline. Therefore, therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies amongst themselves. In other words, God gave them over to their desires. This is what happened when God just takes mankind off the leash and says, fine, you don't want to walk with me. You don't want to be with me. You don't want to follow me. You just go your own way. And this is what happens when you get to the nth degree of this. The nth degree. To, to the place, to the place where, where sin ultimately rules. I'm going to switch gears here. I, I really want us to understand how, how it's possible for human beings to become this wicked. Because experientially, none of us understand this. None of us understand this. So at least hypothetically, I want us to get somewhat of a grasp on it before we move on. So how do you become great at something? What do you need? I, I mean, in a good sense. To be great at something, your craft, your, your profession... Uh, to be a great in athletics or, or music or industry or to be a great parent, to be great at something truly, truly exceptional. The goat, if you will, the greatest of all time of whatever it is you're, you're striving for. How do you become the goat of your, your field? Practice, desire, time. Excellent. I've, all of those are down here. I wrote them all down. You've nailed it. So here, the essence, this is what we need, key to greatness, devotion. You have to love what you're doing. You have, there has to be a strong desire for it. There has to be discipline. You've got to be willing to do certain things to achieve greatness that others are not willing to do. It doesn't come naturally. You've got to devote yourself to it, and you've got to discipline yourself for it. Time. You need time. You need experience. You can have all the devotion and discipline in the world, but you need time to develop. Yes? And you need some genetic potential. Just a little. You, all of the other things can compensate for, for lack of talent. Right? And then, then you become 
the goat, Dan Gable, or the up-and-coming Spencer Lee, if we're talking about wrestling. These, these individuals are a class apart from everyone else. Now, or, or, or Tom Brady, if you will. Now, Tom Brady's on the downslope of the curve, right? Why? He's old. Have you read Genesis 5? These people don't age. They have, they're living hundreds and hundreds, 900, 900 years. So I want you to imagine, or turn to Genesis chapter 4. Let's take a look at one example. So we have Cain, he kills Abel, and then we have a few generations, Lamech. Lamech says to his wives, this is verse 23, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. There's an awesome guy that right away, he's, he's already labeled himself as, as less, than, uh, less than ideal. You wives of Lamech. By the way, guys, don't go home and say, you wife of mine, make me a sandwich. This will set you apart as a complete moron who needs to be slapped upside the head. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. You see what's going on here? He has institutionalized institutionalized vengeance as public policy. Now, what happens when you institutionalize vengeance as public policy and you live seven, eight hundred years? You get really good at your craft. Really good at your craft. If your goal Every intention of your thought, of your heart, is only evil continually. In other words, if you are seeking your own welfare to dominate, to subdue others, and you have centuries to perfect your craft, think about the potential of what a society would look like. That's what it looks like. This is where the world is at this time. Now, there's some other stuff going on here, just for fun and to to pique your interest if you haven't read this yet. Just look backwards here a few verses, verse 1 in chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. And his days shall be 120 years. And the Philom were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And then it says, you know, here we are. Every intention of the thought. Who in the heck are those guys? Who, what is going on? There, commentators are, there's roughly three different views on this and all of them are weird. Well, one of them is really weird. These are, these are fallen angels, the sons of God, that take the daughters of men, breed with them, and they produce a super, super genetic species, if you will. That's one view. And, and this would account for the hyper evil that's in the world. That's a view. Some say, no, 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 sons of God means sons of Seth, the, 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 the godly line. 
So these are righteous individuals that took took on in whatever, and, and then so the the point, regardless of where you fall, and we're not going to spend any time trying to figure this out. It's really interesting, but the point that uh, the point that's being made here is that mankind has crossed a threshold, a point of no return. There's no going back. You know when something's broke and you just it can't be fixed. This is where we're at. It can't be fixed. This is the point of no return. The extent, the extent is pervasive. Mankind is completely corrupt, completely corrupt, completely ruined, completely ruined. So that's the extent. That's the extent. Okay, the penalty, the penalty. God says, I'm going to blot them out. But I, just, just, just for the record, this isn't news. This should be news to absolutely no one. Why? In the garden, God said, there's one tree that you may not eat of. There's only one prohibition. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You shall die. So mankind from the beginning has known that sin will lead to death. Now, when Adam and Eve took the fruit, did they die that day? No, they didn't. They lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Cain, he kills his brother. He lives hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Lamech kills a man for wounding him, and he lives hundreds and... They're not dying on the day they're sinning. So the idea that God is going to... He's going to bring about judgment death because of sin is should be news to no one but somehow when we get to genesis 6 and we see that because of this the wickedness of man was his inclination of his heart was only evil all the time and then he says therefore i'm going to blot man out we're like that seems harsh it seems harsh let's take a look at this and the lord god regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. How many of you, you get to verse 6, the fourth word in, and you are troubled already? And the Lord God regretted. What is that about? Sometimes that word is translated repented. The Lord God regretted. It, it, means to, it means to have sorrow. It means to mourn. Uh, the Lord God regretted. What does that mean? Well, how do we use the word regret? How many of you were here, I think it was about a year or a few months ago, for the, for the infamous corn dip sermon? Do you remember the corn dip sermon? I, I shared how I had gone to... My dad's and my stepmom made this corn dip and I ate like four bowls of it. I woke up in the middle of the night burping and throwing up in my mouth and I regretted. I deeply regretted the corn dip. I regret. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm looking, I'm looking back at the day in the middle of the night with the indigestion, with throwing up in my mouth and I'm, I'm regretting the, the poor choices I made earlier. I made very poor life choices earlier that day. 
to continue to stuff my gullet with food long after I was full. Okay, I regret that. Now, when I say I regret that, what I mean is I made a poor choice. No, 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 no. I made a series of poor choices that brought my circumstances in the middle of the night to be in a place of pain. That's what I mean by regret. People regret lots of things. They regret not spending more time with their children when they were growing up. They regret having extramarital affairs. Uh, Young men who become husbands regret having given themselves to porn when they got their first iPhone. There's There's a number of things we regret, right? Now, what do all of those things have in common? All of those things have in common experiencing pain due to one's own poor choices. Yes, that's not what it means in God's case. God does not make a mistake. He's not saying, if I had to do it over again, I would not have made Adam and Eve. That's not what he's saying. So this is the difficulty when we're, we're reading. God feels. God is an emotive being. He feels joy. He feels sorrow. We feel because we're created in his image. So we have the capacity to, to like God, feel certain emotions. Sorrow is one of them. Now, where, where the regret of God is different than the regret of Brooks is that God is experiencing the pain of the moral choices of the creatures he's made. He's not experiencing the, the mistake of his own poor choices. He's exp- creation is ruined not because of his choices, but because of man's choices. And he's feeling sorrow. He's feeling sorrow. So his regret is not the same as our regret. Just to further show you, and maybe make it worse, 1 Samuel chapter uh, 15. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now, this could be read, he's thinking, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't have allowed him to become king. You can read it that way. However, if you read ahead, if you read ahead to verse 29, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Well, which is it? I mean, in verse 11, God says, I have regret. And then verse 29, he says, I'm not a man that I should have regret. Oh, but just to make it even funner, when we get to the very last verse, and the Lord God regretted that he had made Saul over Israel. So there you have it. So did he regret or did he not regret? Either the author of 1 Samuel and the author of Genesis have not got the memo that God is not like man and does not regret, or they're completely lunatics and they just, sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he doesn't. You choose. Let's give the authors of Scripture just a bit of credit that maybe they understand and are trying to convey that God does not regret as we regret because he is not man that he should lie. He hasn't made a wrong decision. He's emotionally feeling the grief and sorrow of a ruined creation. That's what it means. That's what it means. 
And then it says in verse 6, the Lord acts. So the Lord said, I will blot out man. Now we're going to cover more of that next week. I will blot out man. Verse 3 of chapter 6, it says that... uh, um, Verse 3, let's take a look there. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That could mean one of two things. It means that after the flood, after the flood, man's not going to live for 900 years anymore. At best, he's going to live to 120. And that's going to be the the cap. We're not going to live much longer beyond that. Or... Or, and this is also plausible, in 120 years, I'm going to blot them out. Which is also true. So it could be, the, the intent could be both. In 120 years, I'm going to bring the flood. And after that, man's not going to live past 120 years. I'm not sure which it means. But the point is, is that God is going to, he's going to leash mankind. He's not going to give them centuries to hone their craft of exploiting other people and executing injustice. He's no longer going to do that. He's not going to give them centuries. He's going to give them about 120 years at the longest. At the longest. So he's setting up something different. There's something different. My spirit will not abide. So this has been pretty dark. This has been pretty heavy. Now let's turn to Genesis 6, verse 8. A glimmer of hope. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. Three things I want to look at about the word favor, which is also grace. It's the same word. In Hebrew, sometimes it's translated favor. Sometimes it's translated grace. So Noah found favor. Three things. Where does this grace or favor come from? Number two, uh, how do you receive it? And number three, what does grace produce? First of all, where it originates. But Noah found favor. But Noah found favor. What does that mean? One of two things. It can't mean both. One of two things. Option number one. Noah was righteous, so God favored him. (laughs) Good question. Now, I want to stop with number one just for a minute because that's what most people think without knowing it. They think, God looks at the cesspool of humanity, the cesspool of humanity, and there's one beautiful flower floating amongst the cesspool. Noah. My heart skips a beat. He's so righteous. Amongst all these terrible people, there's Noah. He's so awesome. Is that what this means? No, that's not what this means. The implications, if that's what you think, that Noah was good and God saw that Noah was good and therefore he found favor, it means, it means that favor or grace originates in the receiver. In other words, God's giving of grace is a direct response to the righteousness of Noah. If that's true, there's no hope for you or me. There's no hope. If the basis of receiving God's grace is found in the merit of the recipients, the origin of God's grace is not in Noah. It's not in me. It's not in you. It is in him. It is in God. 
Noah found favor. That word found, that the Hebrew word found, it literally means meet by chance. Noah's like, oh, look, God's favor. He wasn't striving to be awesome so that God would love and accept him. He happened upon the grace of God. He found it. And, and favor, it, it means grace. Grace is a gift. By definition, Noah was not working to become righteous so that God would love and accept him. This is absolutely crucial. He is a man of God because God chose him and poured his grace out upon him. Grace originates in the person of God. How is grace received? How was it received? He found it. He happened upon it. It's, it originates in God, but how did he receive it? The author of Hebrews gives us some clarity. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, by faith, Noah, being, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, more on that next week, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He received the grace by faith. Faith is the act of trusting. It's the act of trusting. So he finds favor because God bestows him grace, but how does he receive that favor? He receives that favor by faith, by trusting. He takes God at his word. He takes God at his word. This is the opposite of what Adam and Eve do. Adam and Eve do not take God at his word. Adam and Eve determine that they will be the arbiters of what is right and what is wrong, and they will determine in their own eyes what is good and what is evil. Noah, in contrast, finds favor God extends that favor and he receives that favor by the act of taking God at his word. I will trust you. I will trust you. That's what it means. That's faith. It's the act of trusting. It's the act of trusting. More on, more on that next week. Now, what does this grace then produce? What does this grace then produce? Last sentence in verse 7. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Why is Noah righteous? God bestowed grace upon him. He received that grace through faith, and that faith then produced righteousness. The order matters. If the order is God saw that Noah was righteous, therefore determined to give him faith, then we are all screwed. There's no hope at all. However, if... God bestows his grace and we simply have to, all we have to do is to, is to trust. 
then God produces his righteousness in us. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. By the way, I think most people in our culture, believers or unbelievers, are at least acknowledge that one ought to try to be good. Yeah, true. Of course, yeah, that's most people. Most people. So what Lewis is saying, this isn't from his book, Mere Christianity, the Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. They hope by being good to please God if there is one. Or if they think there is not, at least they hope to deserve the approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside of him. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Let me read that again. He does not think God will love us because we're good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it's bright, but becomes bright because the sun shines on it. That's Noah. He's, he's receiving, he's found favor in the eyes of God and he's receiving this grace through the act of trusting and it produces righteousness, which is righteous living. And that's why Noah is so different from his peers. More on that next week. But that's the order. That's the order. And as we close... The question, before we leave Noah, is will you receive grace? Will you receive grace? Verse 23, the wages, the wages of sin is death. It's never not been death. It's always been that way. In Genesis chapter 2, for on the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, all die. Now people, they get all freaked out and bent out of shape when they're reading Genesis chapter 6 and 7 because everybody dies all at once. It's funny, but no one seems to mind if everybody dies spread out over time. Have you noticed that? There's no moral outrage. There's no intellectual hand-wringing. <gasps> God allows everyone to die. No one's shocked by this. But if you line it up on one day, oh my, it's, really, it's a big shocker. Nothing's new. Here's a shocker, said no one ever. All of you are going to die. Every single one of you. That spouse that you love so much, they're going to go before you or you're going to go before them. Your mother and your father, they're probably going to go before you, but you might go before them. The wages of sin is death. Every single one of us have transgressed. We're not immortal. We will not live forever in these bodies. We will come to an end. But we won't come to an end because we're created for eternity. The wages of sin is death. It's, it's a physical death, yes, but it's also a spiritual separation from God. But, but the free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
It is a gift. It is grace. It is grace. It's received by faith. I don't know your background. I can only speak for myself. But all of us were born just like David and conceived in sin. And we all lived lives which, which, which defamed the glory of God. Some more so than others. It's, we're, it's not as bad as Genesis 6, but God looks and all he sees is sin and brokenness and pain and suffering. And some of you right now, you've lived your life apart from God. You've known about his grace, but you've never received it. You're waiting for something. I don't know. You're, you're waiting until you graduate college. You're, you're waiting until you get your life cleaned up. You're, you're waiting until you have more evidence. You want God to thunder from the skies. You're waiting on something. God's waiting on you to receive his grace. Would you receive his grace? By faith. By faith. What does that mean? It just simply means to take him at his word, to take him at his word that you need him, that he is a savior, that he is righteous, that he is trustworthy, and to place your faith in him. As we close in prayer, I want to invite anyone who would like to be prayed for over anything, sickness, broken relationship, just experiencing the weight of your own sin, or you want to receive Christ. Whatever the Lord has put on your heart, if you'd like someone to pray with, to pray for you, would invite you forward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you found us. Lord, thank you that grace is truly amazing. Father, we pray that uh, you would move hearts, move hearts to receive that grace by faith as Noah did. Lord, would you show us your goodness, your righteousness, And Lord, would you draw that one person, maybe more, that has not yet trusted you. May today be the day they reach out to you to receive you by grace through the gift of faith that they might have eternal life. And Lord, all of us, for those of us who have received you, Lord, would you make us righteous? Would you sanctify us? Would you help us to trust you more? Would you help us to overcome our fears and stop leaning on our own understanding but begin to lean upon you and your understanding, and your wisdom. Lord, would you help us believe so that we might walk with you, so that we might experience you, so that we might bring you greater glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless, go in grace. We'll see you next week.